Thank you, David. Good evening. If you have your Bibles, would you meet me in 1 John chapter 4? And if you're using your Bible, uh, your pew Bible should be on page 1023. And again, welcome to new members. It is, um, we're grateful to have you join our church family. And it's a blessing um, that the Lord is continuing to add to our church. Uh, If you've been with us the past, I don't know, past few months, we've been walking through uh, 1 John. We took a break for World Missions Conference, but today we're picking back up uh, in that series. And John, he has uh, made it very clear what his intentions are with writing this letter. In uh, chapter 5, John says that um, he is writing to those of us who believe so that we may know that we have eternal life so that we may know that we have eternal life. And as we've been walking through this this letter, um, hopefully, if you've been paying attention, uh, you may have noticed that John repeats himself a lot. There's not a lot of uh, differences between each chapter. It's a few themes that John really clings to, and he rephrases it, but for the most part, he's just repeating the same thing over and over again. So before we uh, go forward, I need to make a confession. It was, I think, last week. I was talking to Philip James in, James in the hallway in our office, near our offices. And um, I was kind of complaining. And I was saying, you know, Brett just preached this passage before me the week before it seems like John is saying the same thing. I don't know what else I'm going to have to say besides God loves us and we should love other people. And as soon as I finish saying it, it's like this angelic voice from the sky uh, by the name of Britton Laughlin said, <laughs> said uh, we could never hear that message enough. I said, dang it. <laughs> the pastor (laughs) complaining about preaching God's word and also complaining about preaching about God loving his people. But isn't that true? That we could never hear that message enough, that God loves us, that we are called to love one another. Isn't it true that we could never explore God's love enough? And so tonight, as we consider God's word, My hope is that you'll be reacquainted with the familiar truth, but then also, maybe for the first time, you would consider what kind of love is this? So let's begin reading in verse 13, chapter 4. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. 
For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that you have called us to yourself and that you have gathered your people together this evening to worship you. God, as we consider your word, would you remind us of your love for us and by your spirit, God, would you compel us to love one another? It's in Christ's name we pray. All God's people said, amen. Perhaps only a few things in life are more sad, is more satisfying than killing two birds with one stone. It's the thrill of maximizing time to accomplish multiple tasks with half the resources and half the time. And probably my favorite example of this happens every March. It's March Madness. And uh, sure, I could watch one game on one TV. That is an option, you know. But there's other options. I could grab my laptop and I could have one game on the TV and multiple games going on my laptop. Killing two birds with one stone. And then if I want to kill a third bird, I could bring in another TV. So now we have all the games going on. And then if I want to kill all the birds with one stone, could bring in some wings, a little lemon pepper, ranch and blue cheese, right? It's the, it's the thrill of accomplishing multiple things while maximizing your time. Now, you may be asking, what does this have to do with John? And that's a great question. John is maximizing his time. And we can tell that John is thinking about time because John is writing this towards the end of his life. And we kind of get that sense because John is very straightforward and direct when it comes to describing what it means to actually be in Christ. He doesn't waste many words. To show you what I mean, if you have your Bibles open, um, look at chapter 1, verse 6. John says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And in chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, he says, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. And whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. John has been unafraid, to say the least, uh, to draw lines in the sand. And what we'll see in our passage tonight is that John is killing two birds with one stone. That he's drawing lines in the sand, not to just exclude some and include others, but to also reveal to us the love of God. And what we see from this passage is that God's love is an assuring love. We see that in verses 13 through 18. 
And also God's love is compelling. And we see that in verses 19 through 21. So let's first consider verses 13 through 18 and see that God's love is assuring. Verse 13, John says, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. We know that we are in Christ because we have been given the Holy Spirit. Now, that's simple, but you still may be asking, how do I know if I have the Holy Spirit? We know that we have the Holy Spirit because the Lord has promised us in Joel 2 and Ezekiel 39 that there will come a day when the Lord will pour out his spirit on all of his people. And then this promise is fulfilled in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. And Peter, he preaches at Pentecost and he says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to, them, calls to himself. So if you have placed your faith in Christ, the question isn't whether or not you have the Holy Spirit. You have the Spirit. The question is, will you yield to the Spirit's working in your life? Then John goes on to make the point in verse 14 that we, namely the apostles, testify to what we have seen. John has seen the Lord Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. John has seen Jesus crucified, buried, and resurrected. And John has seen the Lord ascended. So what does that mean for us? That means for us that we can be assured that this message is authentic. It's valid. It's reliable. It's not just hearsay. John isn't getting this message from a guy who knows a guy who knows a guy. Now, this message, what John is testifying, is something that he has personally experienced and he is giving his eyewitness account. Now, what is John and the apostles testifying? They testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior, not just of you and me, which is great, but the Lord has sent his Son to be the savior of the world. Meaning that everything that sin has broken, everything that has been solely by sin, Jesus has come to redeem it. The gospel, brothers and sisters, is not just good news for us personally. The gospel isn't just good news for our personal salvation, but the gospel is good news for the entire universe. The Lord is redeeming all of creation. Amen. But we must also be clear what John is not saying. John is not saying that all of humanity will be saved or that all of humanity will be redeemed. So we must ask ourselves, who are those that will actually be redeemed? Now, if you were here uh, during World Missions Conference, uh, Dr. Conrad reminded us through Revelation uh, chapter 7 that in that great multitude before the throne of God, there was one requirement to be with 
to be counted in that multitude. And the one requirement was to be washed by the blood of the lamb. And John, that same John, it tells us in verse 15 that those who will be redeemed are those who confess that Jesus is indeed the son of God. When we get to heaven and we are before the throne of God, it's going to be a diverse group. If you were here at the conference, that was, that was very evident from just reading Revelation. That it's going to be a very diverse group. There's going to be people who are pre-mill and post-mill. And if you don't know what that is, there's going to be people who don't know what that is there. Um, most people don't know what that is. You know, uh, There's going to be charismatic believers and non-charismatic believers. There's going to be people who uh, believe in infant baptism, and there's going to be people who don't believe in infant baptism. And some of you just did a sigh of relief. Um, you made the cut. The Lord is still sanctifying you. That's fine, but you will make the cut. You will be there. But you know who will not be there. Out of all those people, do you know who will not be there? Those who have not or will not confess that Jesus is indeed God. If you are washed in the blood of the lamb, it implies that you have confessed that Jesus is indeed who he says he is. Meaning that our doctrine matters. Not everything is essential. True. But some things are essential. And there are some things that we have to get right. And John is telling us that confessing that Jesus is God and that God is love assures us of our inheritance in Christ. John tells us in verse 16 that God is love. Now, why can John say that? Again, that was in uh, the passage before this, verses 7 through 12. But I want us to draw, put our attention on verses 13 and 14 of our passage. Do you notice the, the characters in these two verses? Here we see all three members of the Godhead. And John can say that God is love because God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have been in deep, intimate fellowship with one another before time. God has been loving for all eternity. And so God is love and God is inviting us into that triune love. He is inviting us into that love. And if we abide in that love through the working of the Holy Spirit, the result is that God's love will be perfected in you. God's love will be perfected in you. What does John mean by that? John means when he says that God's love is perfected in you, that God's love is complete, that you are fully, abundantly, utterly loved by God. Do you believe that? 
that as we sit here right now, you will never be more loved by God than you are right now. God has given the fullness of his love to you. And he has poured it into our hearts by his spirit. And that is what it means that God's love has been perfected in you. Now, if we're being honest, this is certainly a other worldly love because this is not how we love. I'll speak for myself. I like to give love in, a, in installments, treat it like any other type of purchase. So I'll, I'll front you 50%, 40% of my love, and then we'll see how this, how this works out. We'll see how our relationship works out, and then that will determine if I'll, I'll pay the rest of the love to you on the back end. But that's not how God works. God gives all of his love, the completeness of his love, he gives to us. And John says that God loves us this way so that we may have assurance. God loves, he gives the fullness of his love to sinful, broken people who will never value it enough, who will never live in light of it enough, so that you may be assured. And it's the assurance afforded to us by God's love that frees us from the fear of punishment, death, and judgment. I read an article recently entitled, An Atheist Chaplain in the Death Row Inmates' Final Hours. The title alone is just insane. But the death, row, the death row inmate's name was uh, Philip Hancock, and he had been convicted of two counts of first-degree murder, and he was sentenced to death. And uh, Philip Hancock was, he grew up as a Christian, Christian household, but through life circumstances, slowly and steadily, his, uh, his faith was choked out until while in prison, he became an atheist and a proud atheist at that. But there still lingered some questions that Hancock just couldn't find the answers for. And the author writes this about Hancock. Coming to identify as an atheist brought a difficult question. What could sustain him day by day through rage and grief and fear of his looming execution without faith in a power mightier than the people who had decided to end his life. What could sustain him day by day without a faith in a power mightier than the people who, de- who had decided to end his life? Underneath the barricade that Hancock had, had built in his heart to, to suppress the truth of the existence of God, under, underneath that barricade, still lied the truth that God does exist and that without God's love, there are questions in life that we'll never be able to answer. And there are fears in life that we'll never be able to overcome. 
So when John says that God's perfect love removes our fear, we have to ask ourselves, how? Or we have to ask ourselves, if we're experiencing fearlessness, why? Adolf uh, Schlatter puts it this way. Fear is also cast out by perfect lovelessness, the utter minimizing of God. It is not simply a matter of fear being cast out. The question must also be asked, how is it cast out? See, John isn't saying that fearlessness automatically means we have confidence before God. And we all know this to be true. Just because you have fearlessness doesn't mean that it's a good thing. Sometimes not having fear is a really bad thing. Sometimes, you know, being brave is just uh, a disguise for stupidity. Like if you're just going to jump out of, off of a, out of a plane without a parachute, that's not, and not feel any fear about it. That's not bravery. That's just not a good decision. And John is making the same point that just because we say that we don't have fear doesn't mean that we have assurance or confidence before God. And so the question for us is, is your fearlessness the result of you minimizing God so much that there's nothing left to fear? Or is your fearlessness the fruit of you abiding in God's love and having that fear cast out? Or maybe you're like Hancock and you are fearful. You are fearful of punishment and, and judgment and death and eternity. Maybe that's where you are. And God's word does not call us to just muster up enough courage. God's word is not calling us to, to just face our fears and it's primarily not even calling us to, to just be more faithful. God's love is calling us, God's word is calling us to God's love, his perfect love that you may be assured by his love. But God's love not only assures us, it also compels us. And we see that in verses 19 through 21. Verse 19 says, we love because he first loved us. We love because God first loved us. We have the full assurance of God's love, not because we have loved him and then he saw our love towards him. We moved towards God and so he responded by loving us. No, God initiated first. God pursued us and, and is still pursuing us. And it is that, that love of God, that initiating love of God that compels us to love one another. And John makes the point that if someone says they love God and yet hate their brother or their sister, they are a liar. And this makes logical sense that we cannot claim to love, of God, uh, to love a God that has revealed himself as love and claim that this God of love is abiding in us and yet his presence in our life does not produce the fruit of love. Instead, it produces the opposite. So if we say that we love God and yet do not love our brother or sister in Christ, we have to really question whether or not we have come to know this God of love. 
Jesus makes the same point in Mark 12. A scribe comes to Jesus and asks Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus gives him two answers. He says, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The most important thing in life that we could do, or the most important decision that we could ever make, is not who we will marry. It's a, that's a very important decision, but it's not the most important decision. The most important decision in life is not whether or not we decide to date or to remain single. It's not where we will send our children to school or what neighborhood we'll live in or what school to go to. The most important decision in life that we could ever make is to love God. It's simple, but it's so easy to miss. That is the most important decision in life we could ever make is to choose to love God. In all that we do, our hearts are to be fixated first on loving God. Are we loving him? And as we pursue that, as we are abiding in that love, the fruit should be us loving one another. But please do not miss the order in which John is presenting this. John is saying, first, it is God pursuing you, loving you. And by the work of the Holy Spirit, you respond by loving God. And as you love God, He's working in your heart to produce more of himself and it produces and results in you loving your brothers and sisters. Loving people is a hard thing to do and we all know this. It's even if we are intentionally pursuing to love one another, it's never, it's rarely clear cut. So the question is, how do we actually know we are loving one another? And To help us think through this, I came up with a few questions that maybe you'll consider. All these questions will not apply to everyone, but they are hopefully uh, helpful questions to consider. Are you praying for them? Do you put their needs before your own? Are you encouraging them? Do you remind them of the gospel both verbally and through your actions? Do you know their name? Do you go out of your way to make them feel seen and welcomed and like they belong? Are you opening up your home to them? Do you give? This one is a little free promo, but do you serve in a nursery? (laughs) Do you sing with your brothers and sisters even when you don't know the song or don't like the song? Do you attend worship faithfully? Brothers and sisters, these are not easy things to do. It's easier to to isolate yourself when you feel sinned against or when you are sinned against or feel neglected. It's easier to to just show up and consume. It's easier to not serve. It's easier not to die to yourself. It's harder to love. 
but we do it anyway, albeit imperfectly, because we have been compelled by the love of God. It was May 7th, 1945, and it was uh, just hours after Germany had officially surrendered to the Allied forces. Gerda Weissmann was 20 years old and weighed 68 pounds. And where, when these American soldiers found her and, other, and a large group of Jewish women abandoned in a factory by SS guards, left to die. And one of the two soldiers who found her was an American named Kurt Klein. And he, too, was a Jew. And as Gerda was being nursed back to health, the two began to develop a relationship. And Klein saw something special in her. And so uh, he would visit her every chance that he got. And then he would mourn with her as she grieved over the loss of her family and friends. And then over time, they would share jokes together and laugh together. And then eventually, uh, Klein and Gerda realized that they had fallen in love. Well, Gerda is German. Klein is American. And eventually came time for for Klein to return to America. But Klein, being in love, could not imagine living life without her. And so Klein went to Gerda, and he asked her a simple question. He says, I want you to come to, I want you to, come to America with me. And Gerda, this young, traumatized, uh, resilient, vulnerable woman gave a very reasonable answer in response to this question. What will I do in America? I'm from Germany. I'm 20 years old. I'm still healing. I'm broken. I'm traumatized. I'm hurt. I don't have a career. What is there for me in America? And Klein, a man in love, didn't answer by giving details on where they would live or what she would do at work. He just looked at Gerda. And all he said was, for starters, you can marry me. Now, in case you didn't make the connection, brothers and sisters, we are Gerda. That, that is us. Broken, vulnerable, weighed down by sin, and Jesus is climbing. And he is asking us the same question. Will you just be loved by me? Just be beloved. Do you remember that from the gospel priorities this year? Just be beloved. God isn't asking us to be anything else. And if you know this story, Gerda said yes. Brothers and sisters, this is who you are. You are loved by God completely, fully, abundantly. And it is the love of God that assures you. And it's the love of God that compels you. To love God 
and to love one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you first and foremost for your love that could be described in a number of ways. But this evening, Lord, we have considered your word and we have seen that, Lord, your love is assuring and your love is compelling. Father, as your children whom you have given your spirit to, to pour your love into our hearts, God, will we live in light of that love? Will we make the invisible God visible to those around us and to one another? God, would you get a great name for yourself in this church? We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.